Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Paul Perry. Paul is a New York Times best-selling book author and documentary filmmaker. I first became aware of Paul's work when I read his book, Fear and Loathing, The Strange and Terrible Saga of Hunter S. Thompson, which I highly recommend. In our conversation, we talk about Paul's adventures in China with Ken Kesey, exploring pirate shipwrecks and Captain Kidd, following the trail of the historical Jesus Christ in Egypt, unearthing a lost painting by Salvador Dali, and we examine the phenomenon of near-death experiences. We barely scratch the surface of Paul's multiple interests and pursuits. His projects open the mind to spiritual and intellectual adventure, and I hope our talk has that same effect on you. And now, Paul Perry. (laughs) It's me. How are you, sir? So you have a bunk bed in your office? Is that it? I'm actually... uh... I'm in a loft above my girlfriend's garage because Whoa. back in the house, everybody's noisy. So, oh. okay, I get it. I'll tell yeah, you, as soon, as soon as you start doing anything with audio, everything gets noisy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, she has a teenage daughter who's um, doing high school from home because of the whole, you know, state of the world. And so, yeah, everybody's. Uh, between working from home and schooling from home. Uh, uh, yeah, this is the craziest time ever. I keep hearing from people who are old enough to remember that these times right now feel worse to them than 1968. And in right. my head, 1968 was this time of, you know, again, I've only read about it, but a time of just people didn't know what was going to happen next, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Definitely. And it was much more, it seemed to be much more violent in 68 than it is now. You know, there I guess were more, that's a bit good to hear. Well, there were more protesters killed. Uh, there were a lot more nightsticks used uh, than there appear to be now. So, yeah, it was, it was rougher, but, you know, it's still going on. Why are we doing this? And what's the deal with cops? You know, I, t- I talked to this uh, friend of mine who's an orthopedic surgeon the other day, and he, was, and he did his residency in sh- Chicago. And he said that uh, the difference between police and firemen was what he focused on when we were talking. And he said that, that police are very blue-collar, very rough, and on the whole kind of racist. And firemen, he said, were completely the opposite. They seemed to be better educated, more mellow and uh, less racist by far. And it seems like it's been like that forever. And I keep wondering, in addition to having training changes done with police, uh, maybe there should be a change in the type of people who become policemen, you know, the people they accept. You know, maybe they should go after a higher educated group of people and people who are less likely to reach for the stick. Yeah, it's really amazing that you're bringing that up. I was having this conversation with my brother yesterday, and um, my dad was a cop, and oh, yeah? um, he's no longer with us, but he was one of the first policemen 
certainly in our town growing up, but really generationally for him, he was educated. He had a master's degree in criminal justice. Um, he, he grew up blue collar, but he, he became an educated policeman. And my brother is, he's a fairly right-leaning person, mm-hmm. but he's, he's really sticking um, by everything that's been going on. He's, he's married to a black woman, so his son is black, and he's just scared, you know? And yeah. he is not an anti-cop kind of person, but he said to me yesterday, it's the cop. He said, it's the cop. He's like, they, they oh, need to God. treat it like a professional job. It needs to be, you need to have some level, like there's a cultural problem. There's a training problem. There's a, there's a, a machismo problem. Um, and it just needs to be a, yeah. it needs to be a professional level job, not, not a blue collar way out job. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was super disturbing to watch the video for, for two, two things. One thing is, the guy had his hands in his pockets and he was putting all his weight on, on uh, George's neck. And the other thing was that there were what? Four other cops there or three? And only one said enough, you know, back off. But I don't know. We, he was out of the camera range. He couldn't really see what he was, what he was doing. Did he get up at that point? He didn't intervene. That's for sure. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of cops there. That's a lot of training. This isn't what they're learning. So they're—I don't know—they're kind of slipping out of what they sh- the mold they should be in. Yeah, yeah. The the comment that was made to me yesterday was, "What other walk of life in America could indiscriminately murder people and get away with it?" <laughs> <laughs> well, not too many. And also, how many people can commit something like this and not go to jail now? You know. They should have taken him right to jail. Yeah. So anyway, that's my well, legal opinion. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, well, and it makes it, you know, and so I, I have a conversation I'd love to have with you because I, I suspect you're a fascinating character, but I, and I, but I appreciate you acknowledging, you know, it's difficult to have normal conversations right now. So I appreciate Very. you breaking the ice. I went to the pharmacy yesterday to get something. And, and was that your phone or mine? Oh, that's my phone. I'll shut that off. Uh, or my laptop, whatever this thing is. Uh, and I talked to my pharmacist, and she was saying, oh, things are just so crazy now. You know, I'm, I'm having trouble doing my job. Medications aren't coming in at the right time. And, and, uh, and just the political situation and everything else. And, and I said, yeah, things in this country are a total mess. And, and she says, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, Trump. And she said, thank God. I didn't want to say it first. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have a conversation, you know? It's, yeah. it's very polarized. Very polarized. You know, very I live in polarized. Arizona, so you have to be very careful here. Yeah. Whereabouts are you? Anyway, in uh, Scottsdale, Paradise Valley. Oh sure, yeah. I uh, I haven't been to Scottsdale in a while. Last time I was there, I, I went to uh, Taliesin, and I is it true that it's closed or they're closing it to the public? They're closing it down. They oh. can't get enough. They can't get enough funding for the foundation. I just heard about this uh, last week. I didn't really know about it, and then someone told me that that was it. They were going to close it down. Yeah, that is heartbreaking. It's unbelievable. 
<laughs> There's so much unbelievable going on. Wow. Yeah, right. Let's let's uh let's just completely um let's just completely get rid of our any any positive cultural heritage we may have. We may have. <laughs> yeah, either we can't literally liter literally can't afford it or we just don't want to offend anybody one way or the other. I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah. Uh, well, so. so um you're in Arizona. Where are you from originally? I'm from Arizona. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I was born and raised here. And then uh, in about 1975, I moved off to Hollywood uh, to become a Hollywood reporter. And I went to work for a guy named Al Coombs, who had been a roving reporter for the National Enquirer. And he got funding uh, from, he, he was English, British, and, and he got funding from a whole bunch of British newspapers to start a, a Hollywood news service. Wow. And I was working at the newspaper here in Scottsdale as the entertainment editor. And I was interviewing people because there's a lot of celebs who came through, come through all the time. And I was interviewing a lot of people and he was, and he was picking up on my stories. So he came over, hired me to go to Hollywood and to start doing Hollywood reporting. And uh, this was in 1975, I think I interviewed almost everybody that you now see on Netflix, <laughs> the, the older crowd. I interviewed all Natalie Wood, Sean Connery, Jack Palance, uh, on and on. And, uh, and I hated it. I always thought I was going to love being a Hollywood reporter. And I got there and, and I felt so used by the Hollywood system because you always have to deal with the public relations guy. Yeah. And to get an interview. And then if you do anything that they consider negative in your story, you pretty much get cut off. And uh, so I didn't like that. And a, a lot of happenstance in my life. So a friend of mine came through town, a guy named Bob Wishnia. And Bob was a, a, a magazine writer for Sport Magazine. And he said, you know, I, I'm leaving everything and I'm going to work for Runner's World magazine in, uh, in Palo Alto. And they need a managing editor. Are you interested in coming? And I said, yeah, that's great. I'd love to do it. So I went from being a Hollywood reporter to being the editor of Runner's World magazine at a time when it was uh, expanding incredibly. We were getting over 10,000 new subscriptions a month because it was just at the very beginning of the running boom. And it was very entertaining, very interesting to work in a magazine in a boom period because things would just change week by week. And, you know, we'd hire a whole bunch of people and then they didn't like running. We'd fire them and hire someone else. And uh, it, it was, it was great. And Other I, than your uh, your role as sort of an observer and journalist, were you caught up in the fitness craze? Was it a lifestyle <clears throat> you participated in? And it's funny because my mother was Seventh-day Adventist and, uh, and my father was Baptist. So Seventh-day Adventists have a, a kind of a health message. And, uh, you know, they, they're vegetarian. They don't eat meat. And uh, they don't smoke. They don't drink. And so I was raised in that environment. My father didn't smoke or drink either. Uh, so I was raised in that environment, in a healthy environment. But when I got the job at Runner's World, uh, I was in L.A., 
And I remember a couple of nights before I went there, uh, I thought, I'm going to go out and run. <laughs> and that I hadn't really done that for years, not since high school. And I went out and I couldn't run around the block. And I thought, man, I'm in trouble. So I got to Palo Alto and I started running secretly because all the other people who worked there were great runners. And uh, so I would have to secretly run until I got it to where I could run two or three miles, which is what people did at lunch. And then I would go out and run at lunch. And then within no time at all, uh, I was running marathons. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's my success story as far as running <laughs> goes. And it made an incredible, incredible difference in my life. I will say there's nothing like running to, you know, make sure you're on time to make you aware of time, uh, to make you aware of your, your body, your fitness, your heart rate on and on. So it was great. I mean, to me, life is all about discovery and learning. And, and if I look back at some of the pivotal moments in my life, working at runner's world certainly was one. Yeah. And it seems I'm a bit, I have a little bit of sort of a perception bias because I came into your work through your Hunter Thompson book. And right. so my perception is that you brought an interesting innovation in terms of having non-traditional people cover the running events. So initially with Hunter and then um, subsequent to that. So I'd be curious. Yeah, yeah. I'd be curious, um, am I correct in that? Is, was that, it, was that your, you know, were you looking to do something sort of different to spice up the perspective? Well, it, it's, it's a funny thing. Here's what happened. I was at Runner's World, and, and I got very close to a lot of the people who founded Nike, uh, Phil Knight and, uh, and, and other people, Rob Strasser, who's, who's dead now, but who was very pivotal. And uh, he was down in Mountain View, Palo Alto, uh, went out for a meeting one time and and we were talking at this meeting you know big table how people always do and uh we got up to go to the men's room and rob follows me in and he says uh, it's one of those urinal discussions you know <laughs> two guys are saying <laughs> and rob follows me in and he says you know uh we're not really liking mount uh runner's world anymore they didn't like the publisher and the publisher was had some issues with the law and uh, they said, we'd like to fund a magazine. Do you want to come and, and edit it? I said, yeah, that'd be great. And so we talked later. And uh, I, I remember I went to San Francisco with, with uh, Rob Strasser and their, their head marketing person. And uh, Rob said, the only thing I want is that you bring new voices to running. And I said, well, who do you want me to bring? And he said, Ken Kesey, Hunter Thompson, Norman Mailer, uh, William Buckley, you know, on and on. And I said, that's great, because all through, when I was at Arizona State University, all through my university, uh, I always wanted to meet Hunter and always wanted to meet Kesey. And so now, here's my opportunity. So I took the job, uh, we moved to Eugene, uh, Nike's in Portland, but they wanted it to be in Eugene because it's the running capital of the world, according to them. And uh, <laughs> that's where I set up camp for the magazine. And it turned out we, we decided not to live in Eugene. We moved uh, out of Eugene into a place called Cresswell. And it was right down the street from Kesey. Oh. 
So I used to see him going to the, the dump, you know, <laughs> from his farm. So one day I went over there and I, I went over and introduced myself to him. We talked for a long time and, and did whatever you do with Kesey. And then he says, uh, you want me to write for you? And I said, yeah, I want you to cover the 1980 Olympic trials that were going to be in Eugene. And great. So he did that. And, uh, and then we decided to go to Beijing and cover the first international Beijing marathon. This was in 1981. And so I went over with Kesey and with Brian Lanker, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer. And we spent a month in China wow. and, and covered the marathon and uh, traveled all through the country with these young Chinese runners that Kesey, Kesey then turned it all into a kind of a fictional story. I wanted him to write nonfiction, a nonfiction piece. And I was really clear about that before we left, is that, you know, you have a whole career, I said to Kesey. I said this to Kesey, right? You have a whole career ahead of you if you write nonfiction. Because he, <laughs> and he, he says, okay. So, I mean, that's pretty arrogant, I have to say. So we get there, and he's, he's you know, writing everything down and, and taking notes. And then one day, he knocks on my hotel room. And he says, uh, you know, he says, I'm, I'm not a nonfiction writer, and I ain't never going to be one. So I'm, I'm turning this into fiction. And it's up to you to go tell Brian, our photographer, that he's now illustrating a fiction book, which turned out to be a book. And uh, so I did. I went to Brian. Brian was, of course, angry, as all, all photographers always are. And then we, you know, we spent the next month in China uh, just cruising around and and collecting information about the guys we were with and about uh, about running in China and everything else. And he ended up writing a really great piece that got broken up. Part of it got broken up and published in uh, Rolling Stone. And then other pieces were broken away and got published somewhere else. It was a long, he wrote a really long piece. Yeah. I was going to say, how does something like that work where you, you know, you disembark on a story? I mean, there's so many things that, that in that little anecdote you just told that, that changed from the original conception. I would imagine who it was going to run with ultimately, um, like who assigned the piece, um, what, the, what, the, what the brief was supposed to be for the piece. How do you go from it? Um, operating under the auspices of one publication to all of a sudden the output running somewhere else. Do you, do you come back and the publisher says, like, they just agree, like, this isn't for us, go sell it somewhere else and we'll recoup our expenses. Like, ah, can you, is there a little inside baseball there no, you can talk about? Here's what happened there is, is I, uh, I was the publisher on this because I was running the magazine for yeah. Nike. So Nike was the publisher, but the piece got so long that it was longer than the magazine could handle. And so, and the photo photography is beautiful. You know, Brian was great. And, uh, and I decided that there were pieces that needed to be published and that we weren't gonna publish them, that we had to stay on track. On track with us was a run, the running scene in, in China post-cultural revolution, because we were there in 1980. And, and the Cultural Revolution had only been over, if it was even over then, for a, technically a few years. 
So uh, there was one part, for instance, the part that ended up in Rolling Stone. Uh, before we left the country, Allen Ginsberg uh, came over. He used to come all the time to Eugene, to Oregon, and, and he would spend time with Kesey. And they appeared to hate each other, but they still <laughs> spent a lot of time together. Go figure. And uh, he... He found out, Alan found out that we were going to be over in, in China. He said, well, do me a favor. Look up a historian named Fan Yu Long. He teaches at the University of Beijing, and he's disappeared. That in the Cultural Revolution, many people just disappeared, and he apparently was one of them. So we spent two days while we were there looking for Fan Yu Long. And we went all over around the university and on and on. No one knew who he was. And then we just happened to run into someone who said, oh yeah, he lives with his daughter. They live in, in uh, uh, the teacher housing, you know, a couple blocks down the road. So we went down to the house and knock on the, knock on the door. We had a translator with us. And sure enough, Fawn Yulong is there. He was about eight, probably 80, 85 at the time. And his daughter's there, and they have pictures of Cho and Lai and Mao upon the wall. <laughs> it was a very Chinese scene for that time. And um, he said, "What do you, you know, find you along through translator? What do you want?" And and Kesey says, "Alan Alan Ginsberg wanted me to look for you, and see if you're okay." And he says, "Alan who?" He didn't he didn't know who Ginsberg was. And and Kesey says. You know, Allen Ginsberg, he's a poet in America. And, and he says, okay, how are And at Keys, he says, well, how are you? And he says, I'm fine. Well, what happened to you during the Cultural Revolution? Oh, I ended up on a farm somewhere, but I'm all right. I'm back at the university now. And uh, who are you, by the way? And, <laughs> and Keys, he says, I'm, I'm Ken Keys. I, I wrote a book, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, crazy people. I'm a famous writer. <laughs> and I have this all on tape. It's so funny because Brian and I just started laughing at him, you know, Oh, you're a famous writer. And uh, yeah, it was very funny. And so we interviewed Fondue Longfoil. And that article ended up in, in Rolling Stone in part because uh, it was not right on track with what we were doing, but in part also because it was good advertising for what we were doing. They were going to run the article several weeks before the magazine came out. So it was, it was good marketing for the magazine. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that happens quite a bit. Yeah. And um, I'm so intrigued by a lot of your sort of post writing career work, but I'm hoping we can, or, or, or journalism career. I don't know how you distinguish it, but I'd like to bridge the gap a little bit. How did you, how did you go from, um, writing, editing, your sort of your, your print journalism career to your filmmaking career? Well, uh, I'm very visual. Uh, one, my, one of my first jobs was as a photo editor for the Arizona Republic. Uh, and, and I've always been visual. I, I just love working with photos and I love working with photographers, actually. And I started to get... I've written a lot of books. You know, I've written in excess of 20 books. Uh, we still haven't dealt with Hunter yet, but, you know, yeah, Hunter, and then, and then I moved on to, I mean, talk about a ricochet. I moved on to uh, uh, near-death experiences. Yeah. 
you know, I've that's something I want 10, to get into. Ten books on near-death experiences, but in the and then treasure hunting. You know, I've been in. I, I we found Captain's Kid, Captain Kid's flagship in in um, Madagascar, and uh, and the only pirate ship in the world to ever be excavated in Cape Cod, the Witta. And there's other things. But anyway, in the midst of all this, I just got tired of sitting in my office writing. I mean, I realized that I was spending, if I wasn't on the phone, I was spending like days alone. And it, it got to be very, very difficult to deal with. And I started to see things I wanted to make documentaries with. And because I liked that, that particular art form. And I wanted to do documentaries. I like art. I want to do documentaries about artists and, uh, and you know, near-death experiences as well, which came up later. And I just decided I, didn't, I don't want to be alone anymore, you know, all day. Uh, there were times, I actually had one year where I wrote four books. And two were bestsellers. And it was a lot of work. It really drained me. And so I didn't want to keep doing that my whole life. So uh, I went to an artist here, uh, Fritz Shoulder, who passed away about 10 or 11 years ago. But Fritz was an Indian artist, very well-known Indian artist. And I told him I wanted to make a documentary film about him. And he said, that sounds great. Let's do it. And, and then I got funding just like that. I and mean, it's one of these dream things. I got funding to make the film. So we ended up going to, we went to Paris, we went to Egypt, we went to New York, to all of his old haunts and things. And, uh, and I did this documentary and it, it ended up on PBS. And I thought, well, that's good, you know, reasonable amount of success. And, uh, and it was fun. So I kept thinking of ideas for documentaries. And I was also at the time, because of the treasure hunting I was doing, I don't want to call it treasure hunting. It really wasn't. It's, it was uh, ship hunting is what we were doing. And, and many, I love, I'll back off because treasure hunting has got a bad vibe to it. Uh, the ship that was found in Cape Cod, the Witta, was a slave ship taken by pirates, taken by a guy named Black Sam Bellamy and, and turned into a pirate ship. And, uh, and that was found right off the coast of, uh, right off Provincetown and by a guy named Barry Clifford. And Barry has, over the years, it's amazing how much stuff is still down there, has brought up all of these uh, artifacts. 38 cannons, uh, you know, 14 or so uh, uh, anchors, uh, a lot of clothing. We actually found clothing from the period we found newspapers that were stuffed in cannons and they were, they were still preserved. 16,000 and counting, because there's still more found every year, 16,000 pieces of eight, gold bars, on and on. National Geographic uh, has put it all into a traveling exhibit. And it's been traveling now for a decade all over the world. Uh, it's called, what's it called? Oh, something about just pirates, you know. It's the only ship to ever be excavated, the only pirate ship to ever be excavated. And what era uh, is, the, is the ship and the material from? Just kind of place that for Elizabeth. The ship was from 1715. 
And Black Sam Bellamy was a Brit. He came over to get away from England. I, I'd probably get away from the law. And he moved to Provincetown. And uh, he, he was a seaman. There was at, the, at that particular time, there was a rise in piracy for a couple of reasons. One was that there were no jobs. And the other one is one that I'll get to in a minute. So Bellamy uh, took a small boat with a few men from Provincetown and went down to Florida because it was in 1717. The uh, uh, Spanish plate fleet had been in a, in a hurricane right off the coast of, of Fort Ross, right down below Melbourne. And all the silver that had been collected for the last two years uh, by the Spanish Empire was on these ships. All the ships sank. So to this day, there's huge fines off the coast of Florida. Wow. And, and all these guys heard about it. All these uh, mariners heard about it. And so they all got in any boat they could. Some even took big canoes and went down to Florida and started diving, looking for this gold, this, this gold and silver that was down at the bottom. But by the time they got there, the Spanish had secured the site and they had hired the local Indians to dive and bring up chests of silver and gold. So all these, all these uh, mariners had gone down there. They got nothing and they decided to go out and start robbing ships. And that was one of the, one of the times that it was, was one of the births of piracy. And, and Bellamy would go, he would fill up a ship with booty and then take another ship and move all that to that ship that was bigger. And he kept getting bigger and bigger until one day he saw a slaver uh, headed back to England. It was empty. And he ran it down and took that ship, the Witta. Witta is named for an area in Africa where the slaves came from. And he loaded it all up and went back to Provincetown. But it was so heavily loaded that when he got, but by the time he got to Provincetown, it was about to make that turn into Massachusetts Bay. Mm -hmm. It was only about this high above the water. And they got hit by a nor'easter. And uh, the ship, he had two other ships with him too. All of them sank. The widow flipped upside down like a turtle in, in shallow water, and, but they couldn't get to it. It was so rough. So it's out there like a turtle. It's full of, of all the silver and gold and, and now dead pirates. And it worked its way into the sand and out. So when Barry found it, he found it in, I can't remember what year it was, but uh, uh, he found it in only, the deepest water is like 38 feet of water but usually it's in 20 feet of water and it varies a lot because the bottom the sand piles up and then it goes away and so barry went out there in in this boat that was rigged with these blowers they call them to blow his prop wash straight down blow the sand away and then they would go in and gradually get you know all these artifacts immediately he said i'm not going to sell i'm not ever going to sell an artifact and he never has and he's had a couple stolen from him, but, but he's never sold anything. Wow. And it's been a battle for him for years to do that. But he wanted to have the, a, the only complete collection of pirate gold, pirate treasure. Plus, he had this slave ship 
and there's all the artifacts of slavery that have been taken off of it, you know, shackles and chains and on and on. that have all been taken off of it, and they've been put in museums. So he has, he has a museum in Provincetown at the end of McMillan Wharf. There's another uh, museum in Brewster. I think he's going to open one in Hyannisport, but he also has a traveling exhibit that's gone all over the world. It's a very powerful exhibit. And did he um, did he raise the ship? Like in that in that scenario, is he is he is he excavating the site, or is, did he actually raise the ship? There's nothing to raise for the most part, uh, okay. unless it was under the sand, which is anaerobic, and and it doesn't rot. But anything above the sand that's in exposed to water, it's not, there's nothing there. All that's left usually of a shipwreck are are piles of boulders, and and those boulders are used to maintain balance in, on the ship when it's at sea. And, and so that's how, that's how you find a, a, a sunken ship for the most part. Is, so they, yeah. you, know, you find this pile of boulders. Although when we went to Madagascar and found Captain Kidd's flagship, we found a large portion of it that was under the mud. So we used a, a, a type of sonar that was almost like an X-ray. And, and we could see the boards and everything. And it was all under, the, uh, under this ballast pile that we'd found. Uh, crazy. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, it's incredible, yeah. There's so much ground to cover with you. I, I'm, I'm almost overwhelmed. And at the risk of jumping through time, um, sure, there are a few projects of yours that I want to make sure we talk about. And, that's um, great. I would love to learn more about your time in Egypt, the walking trip that you took, how that came about, what that meant to you. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not a Bible thumper, but you know, I do realize, I think as most people do, that, that, that Jesus was the most influential person in history, if not the most, one of the most. And I was always intrigued by those 30 years that he's not written about. I mean, he was only around for 33 years. And, and if you look at the Bible, there's, uh, his birth is covered. There's like, oh yeah, another day, another day when he uh, goes into the temple somewhere, I guess it was probably in Jerusalem, and they tell him what a genius he is, and they give him back to his parents because he had part, you know, separated from his parents for the day. And, uh, and then 30 years later, you pick up again where he's being you know, baptized by John the Baptist and, and recognized as the Messiah. And that's it. This is the most influential person in history, yet we know nothing about 30 of his 33 years. So I went to Egypt, and I was working on a, a film project, Stone Temples of the Nile. I knew that in the Bible, in Matthew, they talk about Jesus going to, to Egypt and uh, to get away from King Herod. And then if you do the math on the, on the next five uh, verses or so, King Herod, an angel appears to Joseph in the middle of Egypt, a place we now know as his suit, and uh, he tells him that King Herod has died, and you can go back to Israel. So that means that he was in Egypt roughly five, six years. But there's really nothing in the Bible about that. And so I started doing a little bit of research, but not much. I was in, but I'll go back. I'm sorry. So we're in Egypt filming Stone Temples of the Nile. And I'm on this boat on Lake Nasser 
and we had just gotten there, so I'm kind of high from traveling so much. And I'm sitting on the bow of the boat, looking around. I look across the desert, and there's three guys on camels with you know their white garb flowing in the wind. And and I thought, wow, three wise men. You know, the Bible says Jesus came here. This is going on in my head. The Bible says Jesus came here, but but uh, it says nothing about what he did. So the the next town we stopped at, I started asking people. Uh, Muslims, Coptic Christians alike, uh, you know, what do you know about Jesus? I mean, according to the Bible, he was here, and, and there must be some remnants, must be some Jesus slept here signs somewhere. And everybody had a story. Absolutely everybody has stories. And, and Coptic especially, Muslim, right? They have a rich history of, of Coptic. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's where it came down to the Coptic Pope, because, uh, you know, there's a lot of there's more stories about Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in the Quran than there are in the Bible. And the Coptics have uh, collected all this oral tradition and tradition from the uh, uh, apocryphal gospels, the gospels that didn't get published in the Bible. And what I found was is that they had, had just created a map of, of 33 sites that they say Jesus went through or stopped at. And they did this in conjunction with Muslims. And so I heard about this map, and I talked by way in to see the Pope. At the time, Pope Shenouda. He's passed away since then. But uh, I went in to see Pope Shenouda and another uh, bishop, Bishop Marcos. I told them what I wanted to do, and they gave me you know, a copy of the map. They said that, uh, they told me the whole story, all these bishops from all different regions of Egypt sat down, uh, decided which oral traditions and which apocryphal stories belong where, and they had come up with this whole map of Jesus in Egypt. And it went from the border with Israel uh, across the Delta through Cairo, which didn't exist when Jesus was around, past the pyramids, and all the way down to the center of Egypt, an area called a suit. And so I, at that point, I said, I really want to take this trip. This guy's the most influential person in the world. And I had never heard anything about this in the East, in, in the West, nothing. There were miracles that had happened. There were visionary encounters that took place recently uh, that got little articles in the New York Times on them. And, and they were lucky to get even that, uh, of, of what they say, there's lights coming down from the heavens. Tens of thousands of people from all over the world would show up there to see these lights. And the lights would last for long periods of time, months. Uh, they changed the politics of Egypt. President Nasser saw them in uh, a place called Zaytun. And what he saw was a... a a vision of Mary. And that's a whole other story about this trail. And so I decided I had to do this whole trip. And, and once again, uh, I went to Random House through my agent. And I went to Random House and I told them what I wanted to do. And one editor loved the idea. And she, she took it in, you know, as a project. And I, picked up 
within the next couple of months. I didn't want to be there in the summer. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's worse than here. So, and, and I went over there within the next couple of months, which happened to be, I signed the book contract on in August, the end of August, 2001. And then 9-11 happened. Yeah. And, uh, and they said, well, you don't have to go. You know, you can, you can beg out of the contract. Maybe we'll do it later. And I said, no, I'm going to go ahead and go. Because I knew I'd been to Egypt before. I knew how Egyptians are. They're very nice people. And I decided to go uh, four, four weeks. I think it was four weeks after 9-11 that we could all fly again. And, and I flew over on uh, Delta. I think I flew over on Delta or Air France. And uh, there was nobody there. There were no, no tourists, no Americans. I didn't see. I went there for two months the first time I went. And, and followed half of the trail. And then I went back again a few months later and followed the other half and wrote this book, Jesus in Egypt. That was for Random House. Uh, and then I was kind of through with the subject. I always wanted to do a documentary about it, but I was, you know, it's hard to get funding for a book, let alone a documentary. I got contacted by a guy uh, named Norm Miles in Syracuse. And he was a financial planner who uh, liked to do movies. And he got a hold of me regarding, you know, totally other project, different project. It was a sunken, he, he owned the rights to look for shipwrecks on 14 islands in Nova Scotia. And, uh, and he had found a fantastic shipwreck with a great story. And he wanted me to write the story. And so he came to town here. We talked about it. And, uh, and I liked the idea. And the day he came over, I got a, a load of books from Random House, a Jesus in Egypt books. And so Norm's going back to the hotel. And I said, hey, Norm, I just got these. You know, take it back and read it. So he did. He actually read it all night, he said. Uh, came back to the house the next day and said, let's forget the Nova Scotia treasure project. <clears throat> Why don't you go do uh, follow the trail of Jesus through Egypt? And so he funded that, and I took a crew back, and we spent uh, another two months following the trail again. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's run 25 times here in the country on different channels, that movie. Has that led to other, um, what's your interest and what do you think of his historical life? You know, there's so much speculation as to did he travel to India? Did he have a family? Um, was he married? You know, is the Holy Grail his bloodline? Um, did the Coptics have the Ark of the Covenant? Like all these topics are sort of in the same stew. Yeah. How, how do you feel about those threads? Have you pulled on any of them, and do you have a view on any of them? Well, I have. Uh, the Coptics believe that the that the uh, Ark of the Covenant is in in Africa. I'm trying to remember the name of the country, but uh, but they think it's in it's in Africa, held by uh, black Coptics. Is it and, Eritrea or or, or Ethiopia? Yeah, it's Eritrea, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and they say it's there. It's held by black Coptics. No one's ever seen it. The Pope said he'd never seen it. Pope Shenouda. So I don't know what to make of that. The Holy Grail is a different story. Uh, I did a documentary on that. I just finished one. 
really? on the Holy Grail. Yeah, and the the Vatican says that there's several grails around, but the Vatican says the one that's authentic is the one that's in Valencia, Spain. And uh, uh, so I went to Valencia. I was have been kind of working on a series on holy relics, and. Uh, their meaning, their meaning now, their meaning back then, you know, how they got to where they are. And so I went to Valencia and and got the whole grail story there. Uh, what can I say about this stuff? I mean, I don't, I think it's more what, it, you can't really for sure say that the artifacts that they hold up are the grail, are the Ark of the Covenant. But what you can say is that they're meant to be. And because of that, they have an incredible amount of mystical and spiritual power. Uh, I mean, example, in Valencia, every month they bring the grail out and they have, they in the Valencia Cathedral, and they have a, uh, a big ceremony based around the grail. There are thousands of people there. And all the people that I interviewed in, in talking about the Grail uh, all talk about what an important role it's played in their life. And many of them will say, if you say, well, do you think this is real? Do you think this was the original Grail? They'll say no, or we don't know, uh, or it doesn't matter. Because it represents something inside people more than it represents something outside and in a box. That's how I see all this stuff. Because if you look at, if you look at uh, uh, relics in general, relics are supposed to be pieces of saints, you know, a thumb, a skull, uh, you know, even clothing that they wore, hair. What that stands for is more than what it possibly is. I mean, most of relics are probably fake. There's very few that can stand the test of not being fake. But everyone knows that. All the people who worship them know that. And, and the point of these relics is to remind you of who you are and what you believe in. That's how I see the relics. And, yeah, hearing you say that, it strikes me that part of the notion is, um, in, especially in a Western church where there's so much um, intermediation between the believer Mm -hmm. and their their sort of uh the object of their belief um the relics are part of that mystical direct connection um to the saint to the to the object of worship um right that you can understand why people would be so powerfully drawn to something that that is um, that is distant sure um and i wonder if um do you have a do you have a so you think of the Grail as one or more physical relics, not a not a metaphor, not a metaphor for the bloodline. From the bloodline, uh, well, okay. Here's there's two or three relics that that are the big relics of Christ that can stand up to some scrutiny, scientific scrutiny. The Holy Grail is one. Uh, the Crown of Thorns is another. And so the Holy, let's deal with the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail is made up up of at least two sections built in different eras, made in different eras. So the first is a red onyx cup, 
Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> this is a, 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 actually, this is kind of funny. This is a, a, one of those cheap little replicas I bought somewhere. Amazing. And, <laughs> but, this, but this is actually, I just pulled it out from my grandson to show him, and so this works. This here is uh, in, in the real grail is made of red onyx. And red onyx was used in the first century in, in uh, uh, Israel for only about a year or two. And it was used as, as cups. They were used, and they're difficult to make because they're a block of stone, right? And so they quit doing them, but these were, these were made about the time that Jesus was crucified. So uh, archaeologists say, yes, you can say that is a cup from the time that Jesus was crucified from the era that Jesus was crucified. And, and that's accurate. I mean, that passes an archeological test. But it's also, it would be like saying, uh, you know, a thousand years from now, someone finds a coffee cup in Washington, DC, and it's made in this in, you know, 10 years ago. And they say, well, yes, this was made in the era of Obama, uh, but, but we can't say that Obama used this cup. See what I mean? Then the rest of this is, was made up of, of gold when the Spanish uh, uh, ran the Moors out of Spain. They took their gold and part of it, of course, not all of it, and, and they melted it down and made this, the bottom part of the chalice. They made it look just very fancy with uh, the jewels in it and everything. And the, big, and the main one I could show you. So that was made in about... I don't know, I'm going to say 1100 or something. But the cup, yes, definitely is in first century. Yeah. So it stands up to that scrutiny. But Westerners are obsessed with science. And, and uh, they have a tendency to not deal with the mysticism that an object, or, or to ridicule, actually, the, uh, the mysticism and the spirituality that comes from some of these objects. Right. Crown of thorns. Want to talk about that? Yeah, where, where is the crown? The crown of thorns is, it was in Notre Dame. It's, it's uh, now I'm not sure where it is. They got it out just before it burned up. Wow. We went there uh, maybe less than a year earlier. And uh, we took the crown of thorns out into the main part of the church. You know, I'm a knight in Portugal. And, and because of, from being a knight, we have access to we have access to a lot of things in Europe, but definitely access to relics. So we were brought into a ceremony. Uh, our order in Portugal, Portuguese royal family, was brought into a ceremony with the. There's a a, a group of knights that just guard the the, holy, the the crown of thorns, and we were allowed to take this into the the main sanctuary of Notre Dame for a ceremony where people, it was totally packed uh, with people who lined up and all day kissed the crown. And the crown of thorns is now, it was, con it was contained uh, probably a few hundred years ago in this crystal donut. So it's, it's like a crystal tube that's wrapped around it. So you can, you can hold it and you can, you know, kiss it, but you don't touch the thorns, of which there aren't any left. And this, this gets to why this is uh, archaeologically traceable. Because Louis IX was the guy who bought the crown of thorns. 
and he he got it from a king who went to uh, on on one of the relic hunts in, in in Israel, and so we don't know if it's truly the crown of thorns, but he we do know when he got it. He got it from uh, this king in in when was it? I forget the exact year, eleven something. And what Louis did was he he would break off the thorns and send them to popes, bishops, kings, people he wanted to have meetings with, people he was trying to impress, and he logged in every thorn. So there's a logbook of what he did with all two thousand thorns that are on this on this branch of the Jerusalem thorn bush. Uh, so we know it's from Jerusalem. We know what period it's from, but you know, can they actually link it back to Jesus? No, not at all. Are any of the thorns, uh, or have any of the thorns surfaced? Oh yeah, there's a lot of thorns around. Uh, I mean, we deal with uh, uh, a lot of counts and dukes and things like that, and guys who would be kings if they still had kings in France and stuff, and they have they have them. You know, they, they still collect them. That's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, they have the authentications and everything. So I think that that's a good entry point then into the next project of yours, which is um, the Dali painting. The Dali painting. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very weird story. I was, uh, they all are. I've always loved Dali. And I really, really like art. But Dali has is, is always been a favorite of mine. You know, so I read a lot about him and knew a lot about him. One day I'm getting a cup of coffee somewhere and I get a phone call from a friend of mine who's, who works for a hedge fund in Connecticut. And Mark says, uh, hey, Chuck, the guy who owns the hedge fund, Chuck's an art collector. He starts in with this story about Chuck. Chuck is this art collector and he has this beautiful, beautiful collection of art. And he just bought a painting called The Vision of Hell. And he bought it from a Catholic organization in New Jersey. And it had been hidden under a nun's bed for almost 40 years. And they just found it a few years ago. They're going broke. They needed money. So, so Chuck bought it from them. It's been authenticated, uh, authenticated by uh, the Desharnes family, which plays a role in all this, but they, they're, they were with Dolly, uh, Robert Descharnes was Dolly's photographer for 40 years. And, a, a, you know, obsessive compulsive. He photographed everything and cataloged everything. And his son now, Robert died a couple of years ago. His son, Nicholas, is now the, the only authenticator of Dolly's work that means anything. Wow. There's, so many, there's so many fake Dollies out there. So, he, so this had been authenticated by the Descharnes' painting. And uh, Mark told me a little bit about the story that Dolly had uh, been hired by this apostolate, this Catholic apostolate, to paint the vision of hell that was seen by the children at Fatima. In 1918, there were visions of, of uh, Mary that were seen by these three children in uh, Fatima, Portugal. And he bought this painting and he wanted someone to write a book about it. And so I said, God, that sounds like my kind of subject. I'd love it. <laughs> and, uh, and so then Chuck calls me 
and you know, I talked to him for a couple of hours and flew to his place in Connecticut to see it. And so I saw the painting, I started collecting information about it and talked to the Ducharme's family and on and on. And I'm in the middle of writing the book and I hear that in, in uh, Fatima, there's gonna be the last remaining members of the visionaries family, or original family are gonna have a conference. They're just all gonna to get together because they're way too old to have a coherent conference. So I told Chuck about it and he, and he said, well, go there. So, you know, I flew to Fatima and, uh, and I, in the meantime, I said, I really want to make a documentary of this. This is the last chance to get these people on film. Okay. He funds that. And, uh, and I couldn't let go of the subject. The subject was just fascinating to me. I got to this castle, a Rem castle, which is part of the painting. And, and I met this guy who had been the secretary of John Hafford. John Hafford had, had paid for the painting to be done. And he knew all these stories about Hafford, and he had all this documentation to back them up. And uh, then I got a hold of the Descharnes, and I went to France, talked to the Descharnes. And then I went back to New Jersey, and I talked to the, the people at the Apostolate. And they gave me all these letters that had been written back and forth between John Hafford and Dolly. Wow. And uh, it just turned into this great documentary. Uh, the, it, because the painting changed Dolly's life. It changed the focus of, the, what, of his work. So up until uh, like the mid-1950s, you know, he was doing what Dolly does. And then toward, the, toward 1960, more, more like 57, 58, it started to change. He started to, to paint uh, religious paintings. And he got more, he got interested in, as many Catholics do, the Catholicism of his youth. But he was also interested in something else. Dolly was interested in eternal life. Uh, he wanted immortality. And he went on a search to find immortality. This painting is part of that search, but other things he looked at were, were uh, cryogenics. He was he wanted to freeze himself, and then and then, you know, when he died, freeze himself and then be brought back to life. You know, hundreds of years later, uh, he wanted to clone himself because he thought that in the course of cloning himself, he would also clone his consciousness. And when he realized that wasn't true, he, he dropped that. He realized that, by the way, by talking to uh, the guys who had discovered DNA, it discovered the double helix, uh, Crick and Watson. And they all went out to dinner in New York and, and had this talk about DNA. So, so he finally, his last resort in a lot of ways was to go back to religion. And, and he was most interested in the mystical side of religion. Uh, which is what, you know, money drew him to do this painting, to do this painting in Fatima. He was hired to do it. But it also, he realized what a mystical experience it was for these children to see Mary. And, uh, and then at, at, they saw her three times. The third time, uh, 50,000 people saw it. The Miracle of the Sun. 
Yeah, miracle of the sun, and and fifty thousand people saw a miracle, and uh, and other miraculous things happened in conjunction with that. So that to Dolly meant that there was there was a mystical truth in religion. Can you uh, b- before we Although finish he, up on he, the Dolly topic, could you tell me what yeah. the, would you just explain the miracle of the sun to people? Because I think the thing about Fatima is that I was talking with someone about this the other day. It's not ancient history. It happened in the modern world, no. you know. Um, we right. World War One had just finished, and the Russian Revolution, and we had mechanization and industrial. This wasn't something that happened in agrarian time. Um, it happened no, very recently. Well, what I'll just start with the original uh, visions. These three children: uh, one was Lucia, Jacinta, and I forget the boy's name. Okay. Right, but anyway, they were in a pasture one day. And they heard a noise that was just a very unique noise, almost like a weak sonic boom. And they looked up and they said they saw uh, what they later described as Mary, the Virgin Mary. You know, she was radiant, beautiful, dressed in that Mary blue that you see all the time. And uh, uh, I think her lips didn't move, but, but they com- conveyed information about the future, about the, the, you know, there were secrets to be told from these visions. And so the children saw, they went home, they told their mother, their parents what happened. You know, Lu, uh, Lucia got beaten up by her parents because she saw it. And uh, it, then the month later, another month uh, went by and saw them again, saw Mary again. And Mary was giving them different uh, secrets. Finally, they saw her a third time and they, and, and they kind of asked for some proof. So then the fourth time it happens was in this big field. Meanwhile, the newspapers have picked up on it. There's people writing about it, both pro and con. Uh, And the fourth time around, everyone's told to gather in this big field. And so they go to the field and it's pouring rain, absolutely pouring rain. And there's photos of this, so you can see it. Uh, and it's, it's pouring rain, but people are there. It's over 50,000 people. They're all watching. The crowd spread out. There's, there's uh, throughout the crowd, academics, scientists, uh, farmers, you know, children, blah, blah, blah. And uh, what they see is the sun above them start to, to spin. And many of them describe that it would come close and pull back and come close and pull back. And it was spinning. And... People at Arim Castle, the castle I mentioned earlier, saw it as well, and that's about 20 miles away. They knew none of this was going on, and they said the sun was acting very strange that day, that it it was whirling and and moving in and out. And uh, uh, because of that, the children were pretty much believed that they had seen an event. And, And it's, you know, to this day, I mean, there's a whole... Uh, city built around the area where they where they saw the sun, where they saw Mary, and there's thousands and thousands of people come there every every year. It's on uh, from May thir- May thirteenth, June thirteenth, July, August. You know, da, da, da. every the thirteenth of every month is when they had the, when they saw these visions. Is there any film footage of the miracle of the sun? There's not. There's photographs. Uh, there's no film footage. But what I, 
the, but there were there were academics throughout. Uh, there were science teachers. There were communists. You know, and and they all saw it. They all wrote about seeing this event. Yeah. Many people were soaked because it was raining, and their clothing dried within an hour. So there's and once again, it's spread throughout. So there were actually academics and reporters who, as soon as this happened and everyone saw it, they started to pass through the crowd and get and get case studies. They started to get cases from people who had what they saw and what happened to them as a result. So generally accepted that it was an objective phenomenon. Well, it's like all this stuff. It's it's still it still requires a, a measure of faith. You know, I hate to say it, but it does. I hate to say it because so many people are not willing to accept that. But that's going to be, I think, the the summation at the end of our conversation of the the common thread of a lot of your areas of interest: the objectivity yeah. versus the, <laughs> the 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 need for faith or the subjectivity but i think before we move i want to i want to i want to I, I wanna be sensitive about your time we're already running over but we need to talk about um we need to talk about the near-death experience work i do have one final question about dolly yeah um did he believe he was the reincarnation sure. of his brother well you know it's kind of like elvis i mean elvis had a twin and uh and he always referred to his twin you know as as uh being with him all the time and and Salvador was very aware that had his brother not died, he wouldn't exist because yeah. his parents immediately wanted to have another child. Uh, so I think he had a bit of that in him for sure. He doesn't dwell on it that much. He does dwell on the fact that he wouldn't have been there had his brother not died. So he, he does do paintings kind of in, in uh, you know, in honor of his brother. He's got a few, uh, portraits of them and things. Okay. Well, I feel like this is the big topic that unfortunately I feel like we're not going to have as long to explore as I would have liked, but um, your work in the field of near-death experience. Right. How did you get there? I was editing a magazine in New York called American Health Magazine. It was a general interest health magazine, most successful magazine of the 80s went from no, no circulation to one and a half million. And then we sold it to Reader's Digest. I was a health editor and this was after Runner's World. So I thought I knew a lot about health, a lot about psychology and everything. I got a call one day from my book agent, uh, Nat Sobel. And he wanted me to meet him for lunch. So I go meet him for lunch and he says, I have a guy who needs help writing a book. His name is Raymond Moody. You know who he is? No, I don't know who he is. Well, he wrote a book called Life After Life about near-death experiences. It's one of the most successful books in history. Do you know who he is? Have you read the book? No, I don't know who he is. I had no idea who Raymond was. I had no idea what a near-death experience was. And, uh, and Nat said, well, you know, he's a harsh guy, Nat is. And, and he says, well, you know, for the, the editor of a major health magazine, you're not very smart. So I think you should, I think you should go see Raymond and see if you can help him write this book. So I went to see Raymond. He, he was nothing like what I expected. I mean, I knew I didn't had never even seen a photo of him, never heard him. And uh, when I showed up, it was like uh, kind of like Gomer Pyle with an MD. 
<laughs> Raymond is a very southern, very gentle guy. And uh, he was supposed to write a follow-up book to Life After Life, and he just couldn't pull the trigger on it. And it was supposed to deal with the research that had been done in the decades since he wrote Life After Life. So I said, that's great. So I it by Alley. And like Dolly, I took it on as a financial project. And then I just got hooked by it. I mean, halfway through the book, uh, writing it, I said, well, what, what about children who have near-death experiences? What are their experiences and what does that mean? And he says, well, we don't know. No one's ever done research on it. So there was one like the Journal of Pediatrics, and it was done by a guy named Melvin Morse, who was a pediatrician in Seattle. And so when I finished the book with Raymond, The, the Light Beyond, I went and looked at Melvin. And Melvin was in the process because he'd, he'd written a single case study about a girl named Crystal Merzlach, and he'd written that for the Journal of Pediatrics. Uh, he got a lot of commentary from other doctors and, and, uh, and people whose children had had NDEs. So he was doing, he was doing research on near-death experiences. So I jumped in on that, and we wrote four books. And we wrote Closer to the Light, Transformed by the Light, Closer to the Light dealt with children and near-death experiences. Transformed by the Light was about the transformative effects of a near-death experience. And then we wrote Where God Lives and another one called Parting Visions. And I couldn't stop. Every time I would write a book, there was another question I wanted to answer about near-death experiences. And so I just kept going. I mean, I... One day I was with Melvin at a big conference and uh, <clears throat> a woman came up to him after the conference and she said, I can't, I can't wait to die. I can't wait to have a near-death experience. And, and, and I thought, that's really the wrong attitude here. Uh, so I decided at that point I wanted to find one case study, you know, that, that I thought was really the, the best case study I could find. And I went through a whole bunch of different case studies. And finally, I went to visit Raymond. He, he lives in Alabama. And uh, I told him what I wanted to do. And, and he said, well, you have to meet Daniel Brinkley. Daniel Brinkley is the best near-death experience I've ever heard. And so I wrote a book with Daniel called Saved by the Light. And it just went on and on until now I'm working on a book on, on something called Terminal Lucidity. Which, which fits into the, the whole scale of near-death experiences. But it's, I mean, I've gone from the regular broad near-death experiences to children and near-death experiences to changes that come about as, as a result of transformations to shared death experience where if you're at the bedside of a loved one and they die, there's many people who say they share their experience. They have a mystical yeah. experience of going into a tunnel and, and seeing bright lights and seeing other people that have passed over. And, and now I, I thought, well, that'll be my last book because that was the last book I wrote with Raymond, Glimpses of Eternity. And, uh, and then I found, discovered this whole field called terminal lucidity. And so now I'm interested in that. It's sort of... Uh, it's sort of a book about people who have outlived their consciousness, yet their consciousness comes back. So with, with many people who have Alzheimer's and dementia 
or they have tumors or bad automobile accidents, and, and their brains are no longer functional. They don't even really have a brainwave. The people come back. So they're essentially dead in their bed, and, and family members have gathered. There's a whole bunch of cases like this. And the person will then wake up, be perfectly lucid. This is after years of not being lucid because they have Alzheimer's, for instance, or dementia. And they'll become lucid at the moment when they really should have died. And then their lucidity can last a couple of minutes. It can last hours. And then they die. Wow. So, you know, terminal lucidity is kind of an oxymoron, but, you know, they come back at the most terminal point in their life and they set things straight or they just talk to their family like they've been there all along. They're perfectly clear, perfectly lucid, and then they die. I've seen it once. Other people, of course, are in that clinical situation have seen it a lot more. And the estimate is that a researcher in London, in, in London, Peter Fenwick, says that people, uh, about 7% of people who die of things of Alzheimer's and dementia have terminal lucidity. But now it's starting to be researched more, and there's more and more people have it. Then they, people just don't know what to call these things. Yeah. So, so it's if, a last gasp, or the last, the last, it's the last camp. Yeah, coherent conversation. And, and, you know, a family member can see it and not know that there's a name for it. Yeah. You know, so now that the name is getting out there, there's more and more case studies coming in. It, it means that a brain that is no longer functional, I mean, that, you know, that gets the brainwave of my mouse, suddenly something is functional. And there's two assumptions, is that the brain somehow comes back but that's unlikely in many, many cases because of autopsies and you can see how far the brain is degenerated. Or somehow consciousness, which has been speculated a lot, by the way, consciousness is coming from outside of the brain. And there's a number of neuroscientists, neurologists, neurosurgeons uh, who, who have postulated that consciousness can come from outside the brain. What does that mean? It means that there's a soul. I mean, they want to use other words, but, but that's what it means. And that somehow the soul is separated from the brain. Do you think about, as broadly as you want to define the near-death experience, to include terminal lucidity or, or to keep it more narrow, have you thought at all or have you, has any of your work discussed, like, what's the evolutionary function? I mean, you know, question, who says there needs to be one? But it might also just be not evolutionary at all. It might just be what happens. It might be the brain functioning normal as it's breaking up, or it might be the brain, it might be the soul and consciousness coming together and going somewhere else. The evolutionary reason for it, I've never understood why that had to even be looked for. Um, but I'm sure someone has. Could you talk a little bit about what, in the context of the near-death experience, life review is? Yeah, it's uh, people who almost die have these tra this transcendent experience called a near-death experience. And that's a collection of uh, events that take place as a person approaches death. And 
generally they come in a certain order, but not always. So the order they come in generally is that a person knows they're dead. Uh, they have a sense of being dead. They might hear a whooshing sound. Many people will then leave their bodies and be able to see what's going on around them. And many of these are veridical or, or proven. So you can have people who leave their body in surgery and see what's going on in the uh, surgical arena. And later on, we'll describe. There's some amazing stories from brain surgeries and things like that, uh, where people are blindfolded before brain surgery, so they don't get bone chips in their eyes. And they're blindfolded, yet they can see what's going on. They, they're able to describe tools in different parts of the room. They're also, because of the saws that they use, they're they have earplugs in their ears, sometimes music going, but they're, they're still able to tell what the doctors said. And later on, they do that. And it's very, it's, it's astounding for everyone concerned. That's one of the elements in a near-death experience. Other elements down the line, a few, is a life review. And uh, what the life review does is it, if it's a, some are less powerful than others, some are less lengthy than others. But if you have a really full-on life review, it'll take you from your childhood, your very young childhood, all the way to pretty much your moment of where you're at right now, which is dying. And it, you get to see everything, everything you've done to people, both good and bad. And many people will also have a being or a voice, disembodied voice with them, they will talk to them about what it is they saw, what it is they did back then when they, you know, kicked someone off their tricycle or were, were mean to their spouse uh, and how they could have approached it better and how they could have approached the situation better. Once a person comes out of this life review, they're totally changed. They're, they're transformed by the light is, is what one of my books is titled. And that's what they are is you're transformed. They, if you look at the science on it, they are type A without the anger, which, which is defined as having a real zest for life, yet, yet not having the anger that other people don't work as hard as them or not being angry at people that, you know, the way type A people are angry frequently. And uh, they're changed in that way. They're also changed in other ways. Uh, a person who has had a near-death experience, particularly an experience of light, and then particularly a, a powerful light review, uh, they become more psychic. So on the average, uh, a person who has this experience, has a near-death experience, and becomes, is, is qualified as being more psychic, will have at least four provable psychic experiences, verifiable psychic experiences that are, that are big. So if someone gets up some morning and they say, you know, I'm supposed to fly to LA today, but I'm not going to because I had this sense, sense last night that the plane was going to crash. And they tell that to their wife or their other people. And that event happens. That's a verifiable experience. It's not like a, a two-bit verifiable experience. It's, these are serious verifiable experiences. If you haven't had a near-death experience, you might have, you know, a couple of those in your life. People are transformed by the life review and by seeing the light. They're just never the same. It's 
very interesting. They become much more gentle, much easier to be around, much more understanding. Some people believe, and I, I did a book with a guy, that Rajiv Party, who was an uh, anesthesiologist in Bakersfield. And he had a near-death experience, and he picked up a couple of angels who, to this day, he meditates every day, and he sees and talks to these angels. And they've given him all kinds of counsel about his life. Um, I mean, he had a very powerful life review. You know, he, he felt that he went back through several lives and, uh, and saw himself in, in, in different situations hundreds of years ago and saw how these situations had affected him and his life now and the way he treats people. His father had died. He, he, he spent time with his father. He went down a, a, a tunnel in which people along the tunnel were relatives from a couple hundred years ago until he got to now. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty intense experience. And, and it's, it's paranormal. It's, it's paranormal. It's mystical. It's spiritual. And people often don't know what to do with it. So some people become more religious. And many, many people that I've spoken to become Catholic because they like, they like the structure in the Catholic Church. And then other people become less religious, that they, they're put off by religion because they don't like the structure. You know, they feel that people who are religious don't really know the truth, and so they end up leaving their church. A lot of people get divorced. It's a high number of people get divorced after a near-death experience because they're no longer the person the other person married. There's a, a through line that, well, I, I came into my familiarity as sort of superficial as it is with this topic um, through Kenneth Ring um, mm -hmm. and his book. When I first, I think the, I read uh, about his Omega project and right. the, sort of his studies about the similarities between people who report near death experiences and who report any kind of like UFO encounter and how approaching it from, I guess his psycho, his psychologist training, the, the sort of profile of these people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very interesting that a lot of these topic areas, they do overlap, certainly in the realm of paranormal mysticism, but even the, the objective phenomenon, right? Like, you know, there's, there's versions of the Fatima story that are looked at through the lens of the aerial phenomenon. There's, right. there's aspects, of the near-death experience that, and I think, you know, the, what's interesting to me in my sort of personal journey learning about this stuff is that, um, and I think you alluded to it before, science often asks the wrong questions about these phenomena. Mm -hmm. And um, for a long time, you know, my, I, my gateway into the, the, these topics was through an interest in UFO. And yeah. it was for the first years that I thought about this problem it was always UFOs are from somewhere else. And it was the, the work of, uh, of Jacques Vallée, um, who his books opened me up to the idea of, um, that's not really the question. The, the, the question is, there are people from different parts of the world, different cultures, different eras, um, experiencing some kind of objective phenomenon uh, 
with consistency in the reporting of their details. So the, that doesn't lead you to the question of UFOs from outer space. It leads you to the question of what are they experiencing? And that's a much more interesting conversation when you stop saying are UFOs spaceships or not to what are UFOs? Um, and it takes away a lot of the baggage as well because it's not about trying to talk about flying saucers. Um, it's trying to talk about what's the phenomenon of the little green man? You know, why is he a Martian and why was he a leprechaun and why was he a forest, right? Who is this guy that shows up over and over again throughout mankind's history? Um, yeah. And I think that's very similar to some of these other topic areas. How do you put 50,000 people in a field and say they're all liars? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it just... That's sort of the answer. There's there's all these other experiences, like you talk about little green men. Have you ever heard of sleep paralysis? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's a, for anyone who might not know, sleep paralysis in this case is where the body falls asleep, but the mind stays awake. And and you're you're a, a person who has sleep paralysis has a sense of being paralyzed. Yeah, because their body's not they can't move, but they're they're visualizing all kinds of things. And uh, I've spoken to a lot of people about sleep paralysis. Many of them have said that they've been visited by little men in the midst of, of sleep paralysis. And uh, and some of those uh, have been kind of the, the physical intrusions that people who have uh, UFO experiences have had. You know, they've been probed and things like that, but they're not able to move. And I find that fascinating. I mean, the brain is amazing. Consciousness is amazing. Whatever it is, no one really yeah. knows. Uh, and then, you know, you get back to seeing things in the air. How else do we describe them? We ha you know, you have to describe them from your own, uh, the your own basis of knowledge, which in, in mind would be, yeah, that's a fast-moving jet, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but it might not. It might be something totally different. Something yeah. we pull out of our consciousness. Yeah. I think that's the much more interesting view of it is um, I think so. who needs to debunk or even who needs to fully explain. It's more about what's the common thread between all these things and why do people experience them? Um, right. That to me is the, like, I, I don't ultimately, I mean, I, I'd love to unpack it all, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah. it's it, 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 I think it's more interesting to start from the, the start the dialogue with, without presupposing what it may or may not be, but just try to accept yeah. that there is some commonality to what these people are perceiving. Yeah. I mean, I, I photographed a vision in a suit. The response to it was interesting, but, a suit was is this is literally in the center of Egypt, and in the Bible it talks about Jesus going to the center of Egypt, and uh, and leaving from there. In two thousand, they had these flashing light experiences, where over this area, in a suit, there was this light just out of the heavens, boom, just booming down. Now there's a good video of that. There's a lot of good video of that, and once again hundreds of thousands of people from all over Africa, Europe, on and on, came over, and it lasted for several days. Many people were healed from the light. People who had serious diseases, cancer, things like that, were healed by this light. 
And so in my journey on Jesus in Egypt, I wanted it, it ended, it ended in a suit. The trail ended in a suit and I wanted to spend some time there and photograph and talk to people. And what happened to me the first night I was there was I all, I wanted to take a photograph of this church where the, the light appeared, the steeple over the steeple, way up in the air. And so I set up my camera on the top of a police car, not running, no one was around. I set it up and hit the button and did like a time exposure. But what comes out is this reddish light coming down over the church like a spray of red water. And this is at night, so there's no, there's no light around. It's coming down over this church, not covering things that should have covered, covering things that shouldn't have covered the light. And so I had it on my, it's a digital camera. I had it on my digital camera. I immediately set it up and did it again. It didn't happen. And there was no street lights around to cause that type of reflection. So I started showing the photo to passersby. And they said, oh, yeah, those are the lights of Mary. We, we see them all the time. And, and, you know, we saw them in 2000 when they were just booming down. Uh, and no one was really that surprised to see it because it was, uh, to them, an ordinary phenomenon at that point. To me, it was, uh, it was supernatural. So in, in many ways, supernatural is dependent on who sees it and what their <laughs> cultural background is. And, and the same is true of a lot of these uh, paranormal, even psychic experiences. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, my, when my mother, my mother died of Alzheimer's several years ago, and uh, it was kind of a, a rapid onset Alzheimer's. So I, I guess it was, that's what it was. But she was dying and it was on a Saturday. I got a phone call. I got a phone call from a guy named Vernon Nepi, who used to be the head of neuropharmacology at, at uh, uh, Washington, University of Washington. And we had thought about working on a book several years earlier, but we never got to it. So I had kind of lost touch with Vernon and I hadn't heard from him for five years at all and vice versa. And so I get a call from him and he says, uh, you know, this is the weirdest thing happened to me. He said, I'm sitting here it was Sunday. I'm sorry. And it was on Sunday. He said, I'm sitting here reading the paper and having coffee. And a voice said, call Paul Perry. And so I ignored it and I kept reading the paper and another voice said, call Paul Perry. So I'm calling you because I want to know why should I call you? And I said, well, you know, my mom's dying of Alzheimer's and we kind of don't know what to do except kind of, I guess, go with it, I guess. But do you have any ideas? And he said, yeah. He said, he, he then went into, Vernon's a mountain of information on anything. And he, he went into this long talk about uh an elderly woman that he had treated who seemed to have Alzheimer's, but they couldn't really diagnose it as Alzheimer's. And so he did the unthinkable thing. He gave her electroshock therapy. Oh. And, and, he, and he said it was just like rebooting her brain. She came out of it within a couple of days and was back to normal. And so maybe you should try ECT with her. And, and he's continuing to give me other advice, other kind of uh, pharmaceuticals to use, on and on. And the, this is back in the day with telephones. 
and <laughs> and the phone was you know, it was beeping because there was another call coming in. And I said, Vernon, I got a call coming in. I got to answer. I'll call you back. And uh, it was the the hospital, and my mother had just died. And I found it really amazing that Vernon was told to call me and did at that particular moment in my life. To me, that was a precognitive experience. And to other people, it might just be normal. <laughs> you know, there you go. So, Thank you. Well, Paul, I, I've, I've gone well over the time we scheduled, and um, I feel like we could keep going. But um, Yeah, I think we have a lot in common, so... Um, thank you for making time to do this. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so, so much to Paul Perry. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Remember that we're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most anywhere else podcasts can be snatched from. Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. Thank you to Ant Taylor and the entire Light crew. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot com. Keep your feedback coming. Reach me at LP at light.com. Thank you so much for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.